Chapter Eight of All in the Day's Work by Ida Tarbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Napoleon Movement of the Nineties. When I reached New York, I found that the situation behind the hasty call to come on and write a life of Napoleon was pressing. The Napoleon Movement, which I had been following in Paris for two years, had reached the editorial desk of McClure's magazine in the form of a permission to reproduce a large and choice collection of Napoleon portraits, the property of a distinguished citizen of Washington, D.C., Gardner Green Hubbard. Mr. Hubbard was popularly known as the father-in-law of Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor of the telephone he was as well the father-in-law of the telephone since it was largely through his faith in the invention before it was recognized as a practical utility and his shrewd and indefatigable work in securing patents in enlisting supporters and in fighting rival claimants that the telephone had been developed and secured for mr bell and his family mr hubbard had long been a napoleon collector the revival of interest in the man in the early nineties had made him feel that his collection ought to be reproduced for the public but he insisted a suitable text that is one he liked must go with the pictures mr mcclure had secured something well written from an able englishman robert sherard a great-grandson of wordsworth but it was so contemptuously anti-napoleon that mr hubbard would not allow his pictures to go with it and here it was august and mr mcclure with the headlong speed in which he conducted affairs had announced the first instalment for november i was both amazed and amused by the idea that a popular american magazine would think of such an undertaking why i asked myself i had seen the napoleon movement start and grow in paris in eighteen ninety two and eighteen ninety three i had read everything that came along in the way of fresh reminiscences of brilliant journalism particularly that of figaro and i had tucked away in my clippings a full set of the carondash cartoons which had so captivated paris but i looked on the movement as political an effort of the bonapartists to revive the popular admiration for the country's most spectacular figure if the revulsion against the panama brand of republicanism could be kept alive fed might there not be a turning to bonaparte just as the anarchists took advantage of the situation by hurling bombs so the bonapartists took to blazoning france with the stories of the glory that had been hers under the little corporal it is an amazing record of achievement and one had to be a poor frenchman or poor human being for that matter not to feel his blood stir at its magnificence but write a life of napoleon bonaparte it was laughable and yet how could i refuse to try in passing through new york in june i had given mr mcclure the right to call upon me promising to join his staff after my vacation he would give me forty dollars a week more money than i had ever expected to earn with care i could save enough to carry me back to paris and at the same time i could learn more of the needs of the mcclure organization the forty dollars a week was a powerful argument moreover i had been talking largely about devoting myself to french revolutionary history if this wasn't that what was but there was something else 
this man had pulled france out of the slough where she lay when madame roland lost her head i had a terrific need of seeing the thing through france on her feet napoleon had for a time set her there and brought back decency order common sense i would try i told mr mcclure at his expense but i should have to go back at once to paris where else would i get sufficient material that idea of getting to paris encouraged me to try but first we all agreed i must go to washington and talk with mr hubbard look over the collection promptly an invitation came from mrs hubbard to come at once to their summer home out chevy chase way on woodley lane not far from the rock creek zoo president and mrs cleveland had their summer home on the lane and the mclean place where admiral dewey was to go when he returned the conquering hero from the philippines was just across the way twin oaks as the hubbard place was called from two big oaks just in front of the house was the finest country estate in the washington district as well as the most beautiful home into which i had ever been admitted mrs hubbard herself was a woman of rare taste and cultivation a really great lady and what she was showed from end to end of that lovely sunny house maids butler gardener all took on something of her dignity and gentleness mr hubbard was a man of some seventy years then wiry energetic putting in every moment of his time serving his friends and family and in worshipping mrs hubbard i think he tried her preference for quiet and dignity and for people of her own kind it must have made her a little uneasy to have a strange woman with a meagre wardrobe and a preoccupied mind drop into her carefree gaily bedecked society but she took it all in the best nature and with unvarying kindness and understanding i liked her particularly for the way she accepted mr mcclure in the days to come he would burst unexpectedly into the house at any moment which suited his convenience his bag loaded with proofs of the napoleon prince and almost before he had made his greeting the bag was open and the proof spread helter-skelter over the carpet being very much on my good behaviour i was a little horrified myself and then i did so want them to like and appreciate mr mcclure when i tried to apologise for the dishevelment he wrought mrs hubbard laughed that eagerness of his is beautiful she said i am accustomed to geniuses and so she was as i was to find it did not take me long to discover that there was plenty of material in washington for the napoleon sketch mr hubbard had the latest books and pamphlets it was easy to arrange that i have proofs from paris of two or three volumes of reminiscences that had been announced in the state department i found the full napoleonic correspondence published by the order of the french government files of all the leading french newspapers of the period were in one library or another in the congressional library there was a remarkable collection of books gathered by andrew d white when he was minister to germany from eighteen seventy nine to eighteen eighty one the bulk of them in german french and english an item of this collection not to be duplicated was some fifty volumes of pamphlets in several different languages made in germany during the revolution and covering the napoleonic era 
they were for the most part the hasty agitated outbreaks of vox populi protests arguments prophecies curious personal adventures but among them were rare bits taken as a whole they reflected the contemporary state of mind of the people of europe as did nothing i had ever seen convinced of the adequacy of material i reluctantly gave up paris and settled down to work in the congressional library it was not so easy to find a writing-table there in the early nineties and it took some persuasion to convince the ruler of the place ainsworth spofford that i was worth the effort that is that i was there to use his books day in and day out until my task was done certain of that he tucked me in those stacks of books rising from floor to ceiling had to be moved to find room i wonder if students in the united states know how much they owe to this man he gave his life making a library first to serve congress for he held the firm conviction that congressmen generally needed educating and that books handy in which he could find materials for their committee work and their speeches would contribute to the process he made it his first business to provide them as near on the instant as possible with what he thought they needed in return for this service he used every opportunity to wheedle shame beg money from them money for books equipment an increased staff and always for better accommodations for mr spofford had a great vision of a national library educating not only congress but the people to realize that vision he had become what he was when i knew him a devoted domineering crabbed czar of his realm he worked incessantly doing everything knowing everything he paid little attention to the irritated criticisms of those who saw only the inconveniences and dust and overcrowding of the old rooms and who charged him with inefficiency and tyranny his mind was on the arrangement and administration of the marble pile already under way across the square this was what he had been working for a worthy place for books his sharp irritated there maybe you can find something in that banging a dusty volume on my table has often sounded in my ears as in later years i worked at the commodious desks of the library he had dreamed and which to my mind is a monument to him more than to any other man naturally enough since he was the only man i ever knew who had anything to do with its existence six weeks and i had my first installment ready i had done it with my tongue in my cheek impudence it seemed to me to write biography on the gallop i had kept myself to it by repeating in moments of disgust well a cat may look at a king i'll sketch it in and they can take it or leave it but mr hubbard liked what i had done and that meant mr mcclure hurried it to the printers while i in hot haste went ahead with my sketching i expected nothing for myself from it more than the forty dollars a week and the inner satisfaction of following the thrilling drama from the terror of ninety three down to st helena that satisfied me but to my surprise i did get the last thing in the world i had expected the approval of a few people who knew the field john c ropes wrote me he liked the treatment come and lunch with me when you are in boston and see my napoleon collection i couldn't believe my eyes of course i went 
charles bonaparte the grandson of jerome bonaparte and mrs bonaparte invited mr hubbard and me to lunch with them in baltimore to see their collection curious the little things one remembers of long-ago experiences out of that visit i recall only that mrs bonaparte told me that in the garret when she came into the house where jerome and his american wife elizabeth patterson had lived there were literally barrels of string short lengths neatly rolled accumulated by the sister-in-law of napoleon why remember that when the home was full of treasures on my subject probably because i have never been able to throw away a string without a pang something better worth remembering was the startling resemblance to napoleon in a certain pose of charles bonaparte as he stood talking unconsciously hands behind his back slightly stooped he was the counterpart of raffet's napoleon the most natural of them all a bit of consolation for my hasty work came from the last source i would have expected william milligan sloane the author of an elaborate study the outcome of years of research recently published by the century magazine that was the way biography should be written i told myself years of research of note-taking of simmering and saturation then you had a ripened result i said something of this once to mr sloane i am not so sure he replied that all the time you want to take all the opportunity to indulge your curiosity and run here and there on bypaths to amuse yourself to speculate and doubt contribute to the soundness or value of a biography i have often wished that i had had as you did the prod of necessity behind me the obligation to get it out at a fixed time to put it through no time to idle to weigh only to set down you got something that way a living sketch i couldn't have listened to a more consoling comment there must have been something in his characterization of living for now over forty years since it first appeared in book form i still receive annually a small royalty check for my pot-boiling napoleon what really startled me about that sketch was the way it settled things for me knocked over my former determinations and went about shaping my outward life in spite of me it weakened my resolve never again to tie myself to a position to keep myself entirely footloose it shoved paris into the future and substituted washington it was certainly not alone a return to the security of a monthly wage with the possibility that the wage would soon grow that turned my plans topsy-turvy though that had its influence chiefly it was the sense of vitality of adventure of excitement that i was getting from being admitted on terms of equality and good comradeship into the mcclure crowd the napoleon had given the magazine now in its second year the circulation boost it needed my part in it was not exaggerated by the office or by me we all agreed that it was the pictures that had done it but the text had framed the pictures helped bring out their value and it had been done at a critical moment the success of the napoleon sketch did me a good turn with the scribners who had had my manuscript of madame roland for some time they were hesitating about publishing it there was no popular appeal i was entirely unknown but the napoleon work gave me sufficient backing to persuade them 
at least that was the explanation the literary head of the concern william c brownell gave me thus my first book was my second to appear my reward for writing it came from my interest in doing it what i had learned about how to go at a serious biographical study certainly not in royalties my first check was for forty-eight cents i had used up my share of the small sales in corrections of the proofs and gift copies i must stay with them declared mr mcclure and the more i saw of mr mcclure and his colleagues the more i wanted to stay of my first impression of s s mcclure in paris i have spoken closer views emphasized and enlarged that impression he was as eager as a dog on the hunt never satisfied never quiet creative editing he insisted was not to be done by sitting at a desk in a comfortable office it was only done in the field following sense hunts an omnivorous reader of newspapers magazines books he came to his office primed with ideas possibilities and there was always a chance that among them was a stroke of genius he hated nothing so much in the office as settled routine wanted to feel stir from the door to the inner sanctum and he had great power to stir excitement by his suggestions his endless searching after something new alive startling and particularly by his reporting he stood in awe of no man but dashed back and forth over the country back and forth to europe interviewing the great and mighty he brought back from his forays contracts with stevenson conan doyle anthony hope kipling it was something to find yourself between the covers of a book printing a jungle story they all came out in mcclure's in those years and were followed by captains courageous and stocky as well as many of the greatest of the short stories and poems the ship that found herself the destroyers the recessional things that left you breathless and gave to a number the touch of genius for which the office searched and sweated mr mcclure was always peering over the edge of the future it was this search for what was on the way that brought to mcclure's the first article in an american magazine on radium the x-rays marconi's wireless lilienthal's and octave chanute's gliders langley's steam-driven air-runner and in time the first article on the wright's flying machine in my field of biography and history the edge of the future meant to mr mcclure the unpublished or the so poorly published that its appearance was equal to a first appearance the success of a feature spurred him to effort to get more of it things which would sharpen and perpetuate the interest he was ready to look into any suggestion however unlikely it might seem to the cautious-minded he was never afraid of being fooled only of missing something his quick taking of a hint his warm reception of new ideas new facts had its drawbacks if they were dramatic and stirring mcclure was impatient of investigation he wanted the fun of seeing his finds quickly in print at one point in the publication of the napoleon he caused me real anxiety by his apparent determination to print a story for which i could find no authority among the contributors to the syndicate at that time was a picturesque european with a title and an apparently endless flow of gossip he pretended to have been a member of the court of napoleon the third and in the confidence of the emperor 
this relation accounted for his having been invited to join a strange secret party made up by the emperor who was worried over a rumor that the body of napoleon i did not lie under the dome of the invalide it was not known who did lie there or what had become of napoleon to reassure himself the emperor decided to go with a few chosen friends and open the tomb they gathered in the dead of night the tomb was opened there lay napoleon unchanged the emperor's mind was at rest he swore the group to secrecy but took affidavits to be used in case of political necessity the fall of the empire seems to have made the gentleman feel that his oath was no longer binding and that he could cash in on his adventure i did not believe the story but when i expressed my doubt all i could get out of mr mcclure was a severe what a pity you do not know something about napoleon no new idea to me since it was the first thing i was thinking every morning when i went to work what i did not know as i worried over the possible publication of what i believed a fake was that in spite of his quick and enthusiastic acceptance of a good story s s mcclure cared above all for the soundness the truthfulness of the magazine good stories yes but they must hold water stand the scrutiny of those who knew moreover he knew what i did not as yet that he could go the limit in his enthusiasms since he had at his side a partner on whom he counted more i think than he then realized to balance his excitements this happened now the story was in type scheduled mr mcclure was going to europe while you're over there sam said his partner quietly you better verify that napoleon story we'll hold it until we hear from you a few weeks later came a laconic postal card don't publish the story of the opening of napoleon's tomb it wasn't opened i never heard the matter referred to after that by the time he returned he had forgotten what was to me a near tragedy to him a joyful bit of editorial adventure i came later to feel that this quick kindling of the imagination this untiring curiosity this determination to run down every clue until you had it there on the table its worth or worthlessness in full view was one of mr mcclure's greatest assets but it was an asset that would have landed him frequently in hot water if it had not been for the partner who had saved him from the napoleon hoax john s phillips j s p as he was known in the office living in washington as i had been doing i had seen little of mr phillips only heard of him for his name was the one oftenest on mr mcclure's tongue his calm and tactful handling of the general as the office called mr mcclure in the ticklish napoleon story delighted me here's a man i told myself who has a nose for humbugs as well as one who knows the power of patience when dealing with the impatient as time went on and i spent more and more of it in new york finally settling there at the end of the decade i had better opportunities to watch mr phillips in action i was not long in learning that he was the focus of every essential factor in the making of the magazine circulation finance editing into the pigeonhole of his old-fashioned roll-top desk went daily reports of bank balances subscriptions received advertising contracts to be signed books sold i doubt if he ever went home at night without having a digest of those reports in his head 
he knew their relation to the difficult problem of putting the undertaking on its feet it was largely mr phillips's love of fine printing and his habit of keeping track of the advances in printing processes that led mcclure's late in the nineties to set up its own plant it included all of the new miraculous self-feeding machines automatic presses folders binders stitchers it was the first magazine plant of the kind in the country and had many visitors among them was mark twain mr phillips tells an amusing story of his visit as they stood watching the press perform a sheet went awry on the bed the press at once stopped and rang a bell calling for the pressman who immediately came and helped the big automat out of its plight my god man cried mark twain that thing ought to vote it did more than cast votes for mcclure's it saved the money which finally balanced the budget and then some to those of us on the inside it was always a marvel that john phillips found time to be an editor as well as a focusing centre for everything that went on at the bottom of his constant editorial supervision was i think a passion for the profession he was unmistakably the most intellectual as well as the best intellectually trained person in the office after graduating at knox college in illinois he had taken a degree at harvard and later spent two years studying literature and philosophy in the university of leipzig when he came to the magazine he put all his training into the professional problem he was an invaluable aid to the group of staff writers the magazine was building up he was no easy editor he never wheedled never flattered but rigidly tried to get out of you what he conceived to be your best taking it for granted that you wanted to make the most of your piece and it was his business to help you i never had an editor who so quickly and unerringly spotted weaknesses particularly in construction he had a fine feeling too for the right word took the trouble to search for it often bringing in a penciled memo of suggestions long after you had decided to let it go as it was he knew the supreme value of naturalness detested fake style a kind of disease i have heard him say quoting somebody it always disturbed a few of us that nobody outside of the office knew what an important part in the making of mcclure's john phillips played he had that rare virtue the willingness and ability to keep out of the picture if thereby he could make sure the picture was not spoiled in the making the one member of the staff besides mr mcclure whom i knew when i began to find myself so to speak absorbed was already by virtue of his unusual gift for comradeship a friend as well as a species of boss that was auguste f jacacci a brilliant artist and art editor as well as one of the most versatile and iridescent personalities i have ever known i first met jacques as he was called by everybody in paris when as an advance agent of the new magazine he was sounding out possibilities for writers and illustrators he took me out to dinner and paid the addition we talked until late then he simply put me on my omnibus and let me go back to the latin quarter alone here was established the modus operandi for our frequent visiting in the future in paris in new york in washington with one revision after that first dinner i paid my share of the check 
save on special occasions when jacques a knowing epicure selected the dinner and treated me it was he who showed me the first copy of mcclure's that of august eighteen ninety three showed it to me at five thirty in the morning at a cafe across the square from the gare st lazare where he had ordered me by cablegram from london to meet him for nobody in the world excepting a member of my family should i have been willing at that hour to cross paris but i couldn't afford to show a lack of interest moreover i must confess that this preposterous order flattered me a little it was taking me man to man i said to myself and so i was there he had to bully the garcon to get a table out on the sidewalk and make us coffee all this was a good basis for a comradeship which lasted to his death it lives in my memory as something quite apart in my relations with men jacques had a certain superior appreciation and wisdom never quite put into words but which you felt i for my part was always straining to understand never quite reaching it part of his charm was his confidence in his own superiority and his anxiety lest we didn't quite realize it and then there were his rages they came and went like terrible summer thunder showers he would roar down the corridor of the office while i sat and watched him enthralled those rages whether directed at me or somebody else never made any other impression on me than that of some unusual natural phenomenon here then were the leaders in the crowd to which i had been admitted by virtue of a hasty sketch of napoleon bonaparte done on order thank god i had sense enough to realize that here were three rare personalities and that to miss such associations would be sheer stupidity also to know that i was an unusually lucky woman to be accepted then there was the magazine they were making there was something youthful gay natural about it which captivated me often too it achieved a most precious thing mr phillips called it a lift to be youthful gay natural with a lift that was an achievement and then i found the place so warmly and often ridiculously human mr mcclure was incapable of standing up before a hard luck story with the result that he brought into that overcrowded office a string of derelicts ranging from autocratic scrub ladies to indigent editors brought them in and left them for j s p to place but j s p was not far behind in his sympathy for those who were down and out i watched him more than once rescue an author who perhaps out of sheer discouragement had taken to drink and landed in jail mr phillips saw that he was bailed out his debts paid work given him i never ceased to wonder that these two men loaded with work and responsibility should seemingly consider it a part of their daily job to rescue the wastrel and the disheartened there was reason enough for me to stay with mcclure's End of chapter eight